Welcome to Medicine the Truth, one of our four weekly podcasts in the Fixing Healthcare series. I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author and professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a broad range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertperlmd.com. Robbie, listeners are enjoying this blend of the latest in medicine combined with ongoing updates on COVID-19. What's a current news story in each category? Jeremy, let's start with COVID. Throughout the pandemic on this podcast, we predicted that the coronavirus would be with us for years to come. And we said that as mutations happen, which they always do, that periodically there would be ones that facilitated easier transmission and the ability to evade antibodies, whether that was generated by vaccines or prior illnesses, and that when that occurred, we'd see a spike in that particular new variant replace the ones from the past. And that's exactly what's happening now. We're seeing several new strains that have been identified and the rise in cases that's also occurring and the inevitable need for hospitalization, particularly for those individuals at risk due to age and chronic disease, that's also occurring. And as we've also discussed, rarely are these strains significantly more lethal than prior ones. And that seems to be the case with the ones that are popping up at the current time. So we're seeing more cases, likely to see increased hospitalizations, but not as fast as the cases, and finally, some increase in deaths, although they have yet to occur. In fact, so far, deaths from COVID remain at or near all-time lows, with fewer than 200 individuals per week dying as of last month, far fewer than the mortality at the peak of the pandemic, which exceeded 4,000 deaths per day. But as we observed during the pandemic, as new infections and hospitalizations rise, death will come and we'll see these numbers go off of their all-time low. So we have to wait a little while before we should be complacent. Listeners may remember that the new COVID shots are aimed at a recent variant, the XBB1.5, rather than the original COVID-19 virus. And the updated vaccines that will be available towards the end of September, they should be protective against both the new EG.5 and FL.1.5.1 strains, which are becoming the common ones in the United States today. The reason for that optimism is that both of these new variants, the ones that are impacting our country, are descended from the XBB strain, and it's this variant that is being used in the updated vaccines. Putting all the pieces together for most Americans, the current clinical Recommendations to wait for the new vaccine before receiving a booster, as opposed to doing it now. The exception, however, would be individuals at the highest risk from the virus, and they should talk to their doctors about what's best in their specific cases. What's new in the rest of medicine? The story that I'd like to point out to listeners is one that we've talked about in prior podcasts, 
And that is about the new weight loss drugs. A new study has shown that these medications have a major positive impact, not just on weight, but also on cardiovascular health. Specifically, Wagovi reduced major cardiovascular problems, including heart attacks and strokes, by 20% in overweight patients, although the medication failed to make a difference in patients with diabetes. This lack of improvement for individuals with diabetes can be explained not by the ineffectiveness of the medication, but by the fact that they were already receiving powerful drugs that can lower and were designed to lower cardiovascular risk, uh, the risk that we already knew was associated with diabetes. What's unknown, though, is whether this cardiovascular prevention that we see with this weight loss drug is a result of the weight loss itself or possibly some undefined positive impact on the heart or blood vessels themselves. Of interest in this study, half of the obese patients who received prescriptions for the weight loss medications were provided by doctors online, clinicians not responsible for their usual medical care. It remains to be seen whether based on these positive clinical results that more insurers will agree to cover and pay for these medications in individuals looking to lose weight rather than just limiting coverage to individuals with diabetes or morbid obesity. And if they do loosen restrictions, what will be the actual guidelines that prescribers will be required to follow? However, as we've talked in the show again in the past, most policy experts predict that at a cost of $12,000 to $15,000 per year, the majority of purchasers, and this includes both businesses and insurers, they can remain hesitant to commit to pay this very expensive cost for medications that's going to be lifelong in individuals who today are otherwise healthy and don't have defined medical problems, ones like diabetes and heart failure. In fact, the most recent analysis showed that it will cost $1 million a year for a prescription of these medications to avoid a single heart attack. And that's not going to be a cost-benefit solution in the eyes of most of the payers. The listener wanted to know more about the recently approved medication for postpartum depression. Jeremy, as the listener said, the Food and Drug Administration recently approved an oral medication for postpartum depression. This is a very, very distressing medical problem that impacts 15% of women after delivery in the United States. This new drug acts on the receptors in the brain that regulate behavior, arousal, and mood. It has been well documented that women frequently fail to have their postpartum depression diagnosed or treated. And as a result, suicide is responsible for 5% of the deaths which occur among new mothers. And the problem can impact mother-child bonding resulting in medical and psychological difficulties for offspring. Two major advantages of this new medication are first that it's a pill, not an IV drug, which is what the current drug most commonly prescribed today is. And second, it works in a matter of a few days rather than taking weeks as with other antidepressive medications. Moreover, the side effects from the pill have been relatively minimal and they've included headache and drowsiness. At the same time, although the medication was approved for postpartum depression, it wasn't approved by the FDA for the very common 
clinical problem of major depressive disorder. As such, the manufacturer's expectations about total revenue and profitability are likely to fall far short of what the company had thought. And for this reason, health policy experts are waiting to see the pricing that the manufacturer will impose, fearing that the pharmaceutical company will charge an exorbitant price, given the much small number of people for whom the drug is likely to be prescribed, and the drug's price is likely to affect how many women choose to take it. As drug companies raise the price of new drugs ever higher, the exorbitant costs are impacting whether a variety of medications are recommended clinically, both due to the limitations imposed by the insurance companies who want to restrict the costs and the out-of-pocket expenses that the patients must bear. Robbie, what's another news story? Jeremy, we're very familiar with how difficult it is for poor families to obtain the medical care they need. Even when they have coverage through Medicaid, they can encounter difficulty finding doctors who are willing to take their insurance. But the newest data highlight the issues with medical debt among middle-class families. These are ones earning between $50,000 and $100,000 a year. Not only do they have more medical debt than the wealthy individuals, something we would expect, but surprisingly, they also have more debt than the poor. Over a quarter of households under the age of 65 have unpaid medical bills. And that's true for people of whether they're in the group under 35, between 35 and 50, or between 51 and 65. I mean, think about it. If a middle-class family earns, let's say, $70,000 a year, they have to pay $20,000 in taxes, and that leaves them with $50,000. They have to buy their own health care coverage. That's another $10,000. Combine that with rent, food, transportation. There's nothing left when an emergency comes up and they need to pay a deductible that could be several thousand dollars. And for black middle-class families, the percentage with debt is currently at 40%. That's 8.5% higher than black families from lower socioeconomic circumstances. On our podcast, we spent a lot of time talking about generative AI. What's the latest on these other types of AI? Jeremy, first for listeners, let me categorize AI into three main groups. Early on in the evolution of AI, there was rules-based AI. This approach had humans instruct computers on rules to analyze a particular type of problem or situation. And of course, once the application was programmed, it followed the rules that had been given, followed them exactly. The problem was that the application couldn't be any better than the specific rules that the humans had provided. As a result, these rules-based tools, they did a good job with simple problems, but they weren't what most people today think of as true artificial intelligence. More recently, there's what's called narrow AI applications. These did use neural networks and they apply deep learning. The approach which is still being used provides the application with examples of the kind of problem that it needs to analyze and then allows it to formulate its own rules as, a pre as opposed to the previous approach to AI. A good example of that is chess. 
in which tens of thousands of games played by grandmasters are entered into the application, and the application itself then comes up with a decision tree, one that isn't known to programmers who provided the initial training information. A good, great example in medicine is the use of narrow AI to interpret mammogram studies. These x-rays can be difficult to interpret, and the best radiologists make frequent errors, sometimes diagnosing cancer when there isn't one, or missing the diagnosis when malignancy exists. Researchers have addressed the challenge by providing deep learning applications with thousands of studies. Let's say 10,000 studies, uh, to half of the mammograms showing cancer and half not. And then the technology is able to figure out dozens or even hundreds of slight differences in these two groups of images based upon the shadow's shape, its location, its size, its impact on the surrounding tissues. And it assigns an impact of probability factor of cancer to each of these very slight, unnoticeable often to the human eye differences in a mammogram that has cancer and one that doesn't. When the accuracy of the AI tool work in conjunction with one radiologist was then compared to the accuracy of two breast radiologists working together, the AI application plus one radiologist, they were, this team of man and machine were more accurate than the two physician team. Using this AI application obviously would have major implications for physician workload, productivity, and clinical accuracy. At the same time, despite years of promising data on the use of AI to replace radiologists for various clinical practices, few hospitals or radiologic facilities have implemented this technology. Possibly when the final data review is complete two years from now, from the study that I just referenced, at that time, they'll have 100,000 women whose mammograms will have been analyzed through the AI technology, will have a definitive determination about the clinical accuracy and about how it compares with that which the radiologists were able to accomplish. And once health systems can quantify the exact impact on the ability of the technology to save women's lives, there could be an uptick in the use of AI, assuming, of course, that superior performance that previous studies have shown persists in this one. Jeremy, let's say that I could show you data on relative performance of an AI tool versus a physician. And let's assume that the technology was 10% better than the doctor. Would you as a patient be willing to rely on the tool or would you insist a human check the conclusion? And on the other hand, once you know the application is better, would you ever again trust a human without a technological review and confirmation? Ravi, I think if an AI tool was proven to be 10% better than a doctor, I would want the AI to do the initial check, but I would want the information relayed back to me and double-checked by a doctor. I think a big part of medicine is being able to ask the doctor questions be after being given a diagnosis, or even the doctor letting me know maybe other things to look for that may not that may come up in conversation that I might not consider when providing information to an AI tool. I think medicine needs to have this human element of healing hands and empathy and interaction that you just cannot get from an AI tool. Robbie, after our last podcast on the weight loss drugs and obesity, a listener wanted to know more about BMI. Can you explain the calculation? 
Jeremy, body mass index or BMI is a way to measure if a person is in a healthy or unhealthy weight category. There are charts one can access in which you put in your height and weight and a number is calculated. The resulting number can then be put into one of three categories. You're underweight, healthy weight, or overweight, or in the overweight, obese. For any listener who wants to calculate his or her own BMI, the formula is weight in pounds divided by the square of height, and that's measured in inches, and then multiplied by 703. For adults, underweight is less than 18.5. Overweight is between 25 and 29.9. And obesity is when the BMI is above 30. The advantage of this calculation is it's a simple screening tool. The problem is there are many exceptions. Think about a professional football player who competes at, let's say, 250 pounds, most of which is muscle. But 20 years later, that same person's out of shape. His height and weight could be identical and would generate the same BMI. But obviously, the health implications are different. And the same goes for variation in body type by race and ethnicity. The BMI measurement was developed 200 years ago by a Belgian mathematician. And this individual relied almost exclusively on non-Hispanic white men. For these reasons, the AMA recently released a recommendation against relying on BMI as the sole measure of weight and, and health risks. It recommended doctors consider a range of additional measures, blood pressure, blood cholesterol, fat distribution, abdominal girth, and blood glucose. There currently are different BMI charts for kids and for individuals of Asian descent who have a higher risk of metabolic disease at lower BMI and it's likely there'll be additional BMI scales in the future for Black and Latino patients. Robbie, I heard that researchers think that it matters which arm you get your COVID vaccine. Why is that? Jeremy, although there was media headlines on this topic, it was a bit misleading. When I heard the news reports, I too, like you, was perplexed. Why would it make a difference which arm you get an injection in? It turns out the research wasn't actually comparing left versus right arms but comparing whether the booster you got was in the same arm as the initial vaccine injections or whether it was on the opposite side. And now and here, the results make perfect sense. Getting a shot in the same arm led to higher immunity levels, what's called killer T cells. These are white blood cells which attack and destroy foreign substances, including viruses. These killer T cells could be identified in 67% of people who had the booster in the same arm as the initial immunization versus only 43% in those individuals who had the booster given on the opposite side from the first dose. The explanation for the higher immunity is that the lymph nodes in the area of the armpit would be already primed to respond, and therefore they could generate the killer T cells immediately. This finding demonstrates how factors that scientists and physicians may never even consider, such as which arm is used as a vaccine site, can have a big influence on clinical outcomes. It is why medical research can be confusing. The human body is far more complex than a laboratory experiment. It is why doctors often wait for confirmatory research, and they desire to see added clinical studies 
before assuming that a research finding is actionable and accurate. A question the scientists who reviewed the findings raised was whether the same arm advantage would also apply to other vaccines besides the one for COVID-19. And the answer, it remains unknown since to date the actual clinical studies have yet to be completed. About a year ago, we discussed on Medicine the Truth about clinical research being used on pig kidneys for humans needing transplant. A listener asked if you could provide an update on this. Jeremy, the research work is progressing, although, as you can imagine, there are massive biological, legal, ethical problems that must be addressed prior to broad human implementation. What scientists have done is to request permission from families of patients with a loved one who has been determined to be brain dead to experiment on their bodies. In the most recent case, researchers at NYU replaced an individual's kidneys with a genetically modified kidney from a pig. In the brain dead patient, one currently hospitalized at NYU, a pig kidney was transplanted after a gene on the donor organ was altered. This particular gene, the one that was silenced, produces a sugar molecule that resides on the surface of the pig cells. And it's felt that this sugar helps to initiate the rejection process. The previous pig kidney transplant studies that we've discussed in the past, they lasted only about 72 hours. Since our conversation about this, more recent studies have been performed for up to a week. This time, the researchers didn't set a specific endpoint. And so far, the results after more than 30 days are encouraging. Already, the current pig to human transplant has survived and functioned. The current plan is to keep the deceased patient on artificial ventilation for an additional 30 days until late in September, and to see whether rejection can be prevented for a two-month time period, which would be remarkable. The ethical issues related to the impact of the deceased family members, delayed burial, media attention, extended periods of psychological and emotional pain, these are being followed closely and monitored by the NYU Ethics Committee. We know that currently over 100,000 people are waiting for a kidney transplant in the U.S., with 6,000 people dying each year while on the wait list. If this approach of being able to use a kidney for another species, genetically modifying it and place it inside a human proof successful, this would be a massive advance for clinical health care. As always, I'm interested in any updates on medical treatment relative to kids. What's new? Jeremy, unfortunately, the information is negative and disturbing. The total number of kids killed by firearms in the U.S. has once again risen. It was 3.3 thousand children dying from firearms in 2019, 4.4 thousand in 2020, and now 4,800. According to the study published in the medical journal Pediatrics, that makes firearms the leading cause of death for children in the United States. As you might guess, the majority of the deaths were in more populated inner cities, not rural areas like Iowa. It is clear that our nation's approach to guns isn't working. Hopefully in the future, we can develop an approach that will save the lives of innocent children. 
Robbie, a listener wanted to know how much the various weight loss drugs that we discussed on our Diving Deep episode currently cost in other nations. That's a great question, Jeremy. As with so many medications, the U.S. pays dramatically more for these weight loss medications as other countries. A one-month supply of Ozempic costs $936 in the United States, but only a fifth as much, $169 in Japan, which is the second highest prices in the world. And countries including the United Kingdom, Australia, and France, they pay less than a tenth as much as Americans, with prices in those countries ranging from $83 to $93 per month. If the U.S. paid a comparable price to these other peer nations, these drugs would become cost-effective. Currently, they aren't covered by Medicare or most insurers, despite obesity being twice as high in the United States as in these other wealthy countries. The truth is, the limiting factor isn't the medications themselves, but the exorbitant and excessive prices that drug companies charge to Americans. Robbie, in last week's episode of Fixing Healthcare with Stanford strategy professor Robert Bergelman, you talked about how doctors see autonomy as positive relative to clinical outcomes, and you mentioned that the data didn't support it. A listener asked if you could provide an example. A powerful educational study was recently released by J.P. Morgan Chase's healthcare arm. It's called Morgan Health. Researchers looked at data on doctor prescribing of statin medications for patients with coronary artery disease. The advantages and relative safety of this medication for this population of patients has been well documented for several decades. Of course, there are small numbers of individuals whose specific heart issues aren't related to abnormal blood lipids and prescribing these medications wouldn't be beneficial. And there's a small group of side effects after taking a statin and the medication has to be stopped. But the overwhelming majority of individuals with a prior heart attack benefit from this treatment. Working with Embold Health, a data analytic company that specializes in measuring physician performance, the researchers examined data on hundreds of thousands of patients and the doctors who treat them. The researchers found that the top 10% of doctors in the U.S. prescribed the statin for 73% of their patients. In contrast, the bottom 10% did so for only 37% of their patients. That variation to me, Jeremy, it's illogical. How could the rate of prescriptions vary by such a massive margin? And without question, the patients being treated by the lowest 10% are failing to get the medical care they need and deserve. Of course, in other situations, we see the reverse. High percentages of patients receiving unnecessary and often very expensive procedures, which have been shown to provide no value in multiple clinical trials. In the last century, when the medical profession didn't understand the scientific basis of disease and failed to have the information technology required to measure medical outcomes, evidence-based clinical practice wasn't possible. Intuition at that time was the only tool a physician had to decide on proper therapy. But with an explosion in knowledge, new diagnostic tools and medications, that's no longer the case. In a few areas, autonomy remains vital for the highest quality of medical care. But most often today, autonomy is the source of underperformance and clinical error. Robbie, I read this week President Biden released the list of 10 medications that would be subject to price negotiations starting in 2026. What can you tell listeners about the medications and likely next steps? 
As we predicted, Jeremy, the drugs on the list were either ones with very high price tags or ones which were still expensive, but lower in cost, but taken by a huge number of Medicare recipients. The 10 on the final list covered a range of medical problems. They included two blood thinners, three diabetes medications, a heart failure treatment, an autoimmune drug, a medication for Crohn's disease, and a drug for arthritis, and a, finally a drug for cancer therapy. The most expensive drug on the list, it's used by only 20,000 Medicare enrollees, but it costs $17,000 a month. And at the other extreme, a blood thinner, which costs only $600 a month, but it's taken by 3.7 million Medicaid beneficiaries was included. By negotiating drug prices, it's estimated that the government will save $98.5 billion over the next decade. And at least theoretically, enrollees will have reduced out-of-pocket expenses since these dollars are pegged to a percentage of a drug's price. But as positive as this legislation is, the total projected reduction in cost is relatively small when compared to the current governmental expense for medications, which is $335 billion a year. It's hoped that the savings to Medicare recipients from the overall legislation, and this legislation reverses the previous ban on the government's ability to negotiate medication prices. It's hoped that the savings will rise significantly in 2028, when the drugs administered in doctors' offices will go onto the list of medications for which negotiations are possible. These drugs are extremely expensive, and since they fall under the provision of direct medical care, as stipulated by Medicare today, rather than being part of what's called the Supplemental Drug Benefit Program, patients have to pay 20% of the cost rather than what will be a $2,000 a year total cap on drugs based upon the inflation reduction legislation that was passed by Congress and will begin to be a rule starting in 2025. At the same time, there remains large areas of uncertainty. It's unknown how much less the government currently pays for these drugs than the list price, since pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs negotiate rebates for inclusion of expensive medications in drug formularies of insurers and self-funded businesses, and some of the rebate savings currently go to the government. In addition, it remains to be seen how steep the negotiated discounts themselves will turn out to be. And finally, there are many classes of drugs that aren't on the list, including medications that treat HIV AIDS and the new class of weight loss drugs that we've just discussed, the ones that lead to significant weight loss for patients who are either having diabetes or morbid obesity. And there's the possibility that the law itself could be overturned. At present, the majority of Republicans oppose giving the government the ability to negotiate drug prices, and they could decide to try to reverse the legislation even before it becomes law in 2026. Moreover, six drug manufacturers, as well as the Chamber of Commerce, have filed suit to block implementation of the legislation, as in so many areas of healthcare, the future is uncertain as to which direction we will be going. Why are the drug companies so fearful of this legislation? 
The obvious reason, Jeremy, is their bottom line. As we discussed earlier, if all nations can charge five to 10 times more than the U.S., essentially the profit margins generated by drug companies and the ones leading to higher stock prices reflect almost entirely medication costs in the U.S. But it's also more than that. Right now, the drug industry, it's a black box. Although list prices are public information, list prices are rarely what insurance companies or patients pay. Discounts and rebates abound in the pharmaceutical industry. However, when pharmacy benefit managers negotiate on behalf of insurance companies and self-funded businesses, the negotiations currently always start with the Medicare pricing. Once the process of negotiation starts and the government announces the actual prices, not the list prices, private insurers and businesses will want to commence negotiations using those much lower numbers as their starting point. As such, they will be able to negotiate far greater discounts in the future than today. And unless the drug companies win in court, they either will have to engage in negotiations with the government, pay a hefty excise tax, or withdraw their products from the Medicare and Medicare markets. And the Medicare and Medicaid markets cover 40% of Americans, and they account for half of U.S. medical costs. Any final thoughts? Jeremy, when I look at all of the areas of failure of American medicine, maternal mortality is one of the biggest. We're the only wealthy country in which the death rate is rising. Already it's gone up from 18 deaths per 100,000 live births five years ago to 33 mothers dying per 100,000 births today. As a result, the chances of a woman succumbing from giving birth in the U.S. is higher than the next two nations combined. The consequences for the entire family of losing a mom at the start of a child's life They've been shown to be devastating and to negatively impact not just that generation, but the next. Given this context, a recent study from the CDC, I find it alarming. Researchers asked women about mistreatment by clinicians during maternity care. And they found one in five women reported they had been mistreated when pregnant by doctors. And according to the CDC, these types of mistreatment increase the risk of maternal mortality. Moreover, consistent with the two times higher mortality rate for black patients, the reported mistreatment rate for black mothers was even higher, 30%. And it was still higher when the women were on Medicaid or with no insurance. The most common mistreatment problem was being ignored. Other examples, including being yelled at, having physical privacy violated, and threats to withhold treatment if the women didn't agree to the provider's recommendations. Researchers estimate that 80% of pregnancy-related deaths, they're preventable. In contrast to the U.S., mortality in some nations is in the low single digits per 100,000 live births, less than 10% of the mortality rate in the U.S. And the experience of Serena Williams and other Highly successful Black women show these types of problems can happen despite fame and economic status. Making the problem worse, in the context of perceived mistreatment, 45% of recipients said they suppressed questions and they admitted concerns due to fear of the response they would get from the clinicians treating them. And that 
is a prescription for medical oversight and medical error. The culture never graded demands of medicine lead clinicians to ignore the patient's subjective experience far more today than in the past, and avoidable complications and deaths are the result. Hopefully, technology can complete some of the tasks that doctors do today, freeing them to engage with patients in a more authentic and empathetic way. I hope by the time these powerful generative AI systems are able to advance medical care in effective and high-quality ways, that the culture of medicine will embrace them rather than standing in the way. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthCarePodcast.com, and on all podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, and have a great day.